I'll invite you to, to uh, find your seat there. And as you can tell, I'm, I'm joined up here again this morning by one of the precious members of our church. This is Ella Smith and Ella, Ella, oh, Ella Brandt, and Ella was, Grant, sorry. And Ella was born and raised in Russia, and so she is going to read our scripture passage this morning in her native tongue of Russian, and you'll be able to follow along with English on the screens, but uh, Ella, why don't you bless us this morning? Thank you. Oh, I feel blessed, actually. I'm so grateful to be a part of this community. I love you guys. Thank you for taking me under your wing. Um, I... Um, I came to the United States about 20 years ago, but became a Christian about four years ago. So this country actually uh, gifted me with, um, not gifted, but gave me a gift of faith. So, ah, yes. Um, I'm so glad we're talking about like uh, Abraham being a father of all nations, uh, and especially now as you know the war is going, I don't want to like use this as a political platform, but um, I still have to mention it. Um, my country invaded a different country, and um, I stand with Ukraine. <laughs> Sorry. So I have a very good friend uh, whose name is Vera. And I've come across a lot of Veras in my life because it's a popular name in Russia. Um, any guesses what it means? Will be, well, as I read my um, passages, you will be hearing it a lot because it means faith. So now you know a Russian word, which is actually very applicable, right? It's not just hi, bye, but Vera. So, <laughs> um, it's spelled V-E-R-A, but it's pronounced Vera. Vera. Okay, so say it. Vera. I love it. We're talking about faith in Russian. <laughs> okay, so let me read these passages, and um, you can follow along. And um, yeah, you can clearly see when I say Vera, you can say it with me. Okay. Божье обещание дается за веру. И не за то, что Авраам исполнял требования закона, Бог дал ему обещание, что он и его потомки будут владеть миром, а за его веру, благодаря которой он был оправдан. Если бы это обещание касалось только тех, кто исполняет закон, тщетна была бы вера, и ничего бы не значило обещание, потому что закон несет возмездие, где нет закона, там нет и нарушения». Вот почему обещание это за веру, чтобы оно было даром Бога, чтобы было непреложным для всех потомков Авраама, не только тех, кто подчиняется закону, но и тех, кто верит верой Авраама. Он нам всем отец. Как сказано в Писании, я сделал тебя отцом многих народов. Он отец перед лицом Бога, которому он поверил, Бога, возвращающего мертвых к жизни и приводящего несуществующее из небытия к бытию. И Авраам с надеждой, хотя не было никакой надежды, поверил и стал отцом многих народов. По словам Писания, столь многочисленно будет твое потомство. И вера его не ослабела, хотя он понимал, что тело его почти мертво, раз ему сто лет, и утроба Сары давно омертвела. Но он не усомнился, а поверил обещанию Бога, исполнился силой благодаря вере и вознес хвалу Богу, уверенный, что Бог в силах сделает то, что обещал. Вот почему эту веру Бог признал за праведность. Эти слова Писания прислал, признал за праведность относятся не только к Нему, но и к нам. И наша вера будет признана за праведность. Вера в Того, Кто воскресил Иисуса, Господа нашего, из мертвых. Он был предан смерти за наши грехи и был воскрешен, чтобы мы получили оправдание от Бога. Thank you. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Ella. God bless you. 
good. Oh, I love it. Okay, great. Now you can pull out your own Bible and open to Romans 4. Ushers are coming down the aisle. If you need a Bible this morning, we'd love for you to have the written word there in your hands. As you're opening to Romans 4, I want to start this morning by telling you a story about the craziest leap of faith that Kathy and I ever made in our lives. And one of the reasons I want to tell you this story is that this story is part of the story of how we ended up coming to River West all the way back in the summer of 2006. And this is a story that involves both Kathy and I quitting our jobs without any sort of a backup plan uh, because the Lord had clearly kind of told us, he had called us to a new chapter in our lives. Now, in telling this story, I am not recommending this to anyone, all right? This is my story, all right? And here's how it happened. It was uh, about a year before the summer of 2006. Uh, Kathy and I, it was the morning I woke up and I rolled over, and as I rolled over and I, I looked at Kathy, she was laying there with her eyes wide open, staring at me, and I wondered if she was actually dead, because she, her eyes were just, she was not blinking, and she looked really freaked out. And I said, honey, what's wrong? And she said, God spoke to me last night, and here's what he said. He said, your husband is going to become a pastor of a church. And I said, God did not speak that to me, honey. <laughs> I did not hear that from the Lord. This is like the reverse when a guy says, the Lord told me, to, he says to a young woman, the Lord told me we're getting married. And the young woman's like, the Lord didn't tell me that. This was that moment, okay? She was like, God told me that my husband is gonna become the pastor of a church. And that set into motion a series of events in our lives, including that, that summer, I went away for a spiritual retreat, which I would do every year. I would go away in August for about a week. I would turn off my phone, turn off my computer. I still do that to this day. And one of the things I would always do on that retreat is I would just seek the Lord for the year to come, listen to his Listen to his leading. And it was on that retreat in the summer of 2000, in the summer of 2005, that the Lord said to me, I want you to prepare your ministry for transition. I was a Young Life's area director in Eugene, Oregon, and the Lord clearly said, This is your last year. He said, you need to begin to prepare for a transition. So I started praying about that. I started preparing the area for a new leader. And at the turn of the year, so this would be January 1, 2006, Kathy and I both went to our bosses and we told our bosses, this will be our final year. I remember meeting with my boss with Young Life saying, God's calling me out of Young Life. And, and he said to me, well, where are, you, where are you going next? And I said, I have no idea. I have no idea. And my wife went and met with this, the principal of the school where she taught high school art. And she announced to him, I'm supposed to quit my job. And he said, do you not like your job? And she said, I love my job. And she got emotional. But I know we're being called out. And then we had the joy of taking my parents out for dinner and sharing with them this wonderful news, <laughs> which they loved to hear, right? And after about, we, we sort of stepped into faith on this, and within two weeks, I got a phone call from an old friend of mine who was a member of Riverwest Church, and he called me up, and he said, hey, Adam, I just felt led to call you because our church is opening up a position for a campus pastor, and I think I'd love for you to come up and meet the leadership of the church. And of course, that set into motion a series of events that brought us to River West. 2006, can you believe that? Here's the thing. I actually avoid telling this story. I try not to tell this story for two reasons. The first reason is because I don't want to communicate that God is 
constantly speaking like that in, all, in lots of situations. Frequently, God does speak, and he's very clear. But a lot of the time, direction from the Lord, we just get from the word and from community and from prayer. And so I don't want to make it sound like every single morning I turn over and Kathy's staring at me with a word from the Lord, all right? Okay, she's staring at me for other reasons, but it's not always a word from the Lord. The second thing that I don't want to communicate is that this story was all about our, our amazing faith. Because that's not how we think about it when we look back. We look back on that story and we don't go, oh, we were just such amazing people of faith. We look back on that story and go, God was so incredibly faithful and kind and gracious. And he was guiding us. And all that was happening in this story was our hearts were being triggered by the glory of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. And he's so good and he's so faithful and he's so kind that we just couldn't help but respond in radical faith. Amen? Amen? And that's the message of Romans 4. So we open your Bible. Last Sunday I introduced you to Romans 4 and to the theme that stretches from the beginning of the chapter. All 25 verses of this chapter 4 are about faith with Abraham as sort of Paul's model, his example of faith. And what I told you last Sunday was that today what I was going to focus on was what was it about Abraham's faith? What was it about the character of his faith or the quality of his faith that would cause the New Testament to sort of lift him up as an example for Christians. What was unique about Abraham? Why is he set forward as sort of the prototype of Christian faith? And the verses we're going to study this morning, verses 13 to the end of the chapter, what Paul's going to do is he's going to answer that question. And here's what happened to me this week. I prayed all week for a way to summarize this chapter in two really succinct phrases. Because the chapter we're about to read is very complicated. There's a lot going on. And so I said, Lord, is there, is there a way that I could break this down really simply, and I feel like the Lord gave me something that I'm hoping is going to be helpful. And here are the two phrases that I'm going to build my whole sermon around. So I want you to think about this. Abraham's faith was radically God-centered. It was radically God-centered. And the second phrase, I think I have a slide for this, Chris. The second phrase is, Abraham's faith was surprisingly God-glorifying, radically God-centered. It was all about God, but also it was surprisingly God-glorifying. And what I mean by that is his faith became the way that he worshiped the Lord. So in his trusting God, that became a form of giving glory to God. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Just those two phrases. And, and as we go along, I'm going to ask you, how about you? How is your faith? Is your faith radically God-centered? And is your faith surprisingly God-glorifying? So let's talk about those two things. I'll spend the bulk of my time on number one. Abraham's faith was radically God-centered. And here's what I mean. It really was not about Abraham at all. It was not about Abraham. His faith was oriented away from himself and it was placed entirely on God. He made the transfer of trust. We talked about this last Sunday. He transferred his trust away from himself, away from human possibility, away from his circumstances or his ability to accomplish anything. And he placed his trust entirely on God. It was radically God-centered. And the reason I'm emphasizing that is sometimes I've noticed in the church when we talk about faith, if we're not careful, the way we talk about our faith, it can become a little bit human-centered. You notice this? 
So we'll talk about faith and, it's, and we'll make it sound like there are people who are just, they just have amazing faith. And we talk about these faith warriors, people who just, oh, they have astounding faith. And, and the problem with that is in the story of Abraham, what we're going to discover as we read this this morning is that it really was, it really was not about Abraham at all. Abraham was simply responding to the amazing God that he loved, that he followed his heart was being triggered by God's grace, by God's goodness, by God's promises. And so what I want to do is I want to read now these verses. I'm going to read the first few verses. And here's what I want you to notice as I read this. It looks like Abraham is the hero of this story. But what you're going to see as I read it is that behind the scenes, the real hero of this story is the God that Abraham follows. So will you look at it now? Romans 4 I'm going to pick up in verse 13. Here's what Paul says. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, if, for if, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Now, anytime you hear the word promise there, you see that? You already heard it twice. There's someone behind that making that promise. Anytime you hear promise language, and we're going to hear it a lot here, God is the promise maker, and God is the promise keeper. So there's this beautiful, holy, loving, faithful God of the universe, and he's making these promises to Abraham. And what, and what Paul reminds us again in this verse is, God made these promises to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, and he did that 500 years before he even gave the people of Israel the law. So he's saying the, the fulfillment of that promise could not have come through Abraham being obedient to the law, Abraham getting circumcised. We talked about that last Sunday. The, the, the promise was fulfilled simply by Abraham's faith in the one who made the promise. He picks up in verse 16. That's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And now look at this verse. This is, this is one of the most important verses in this chapter. As it is written, I have made you, this is God speaking now, God's the hero, God's the actor, God's the promise one, and God's the promise keeper. I've made you the father of many nations. And in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul's saying, yes, Abraham was the one who was believing. But his believing, the significance or the power of his believing was that it was connecting him to the God who actually had the power to fulfill his promises. That's what made Abraham's faith significant. It wasn't that Abraham was this amazing spiritual person. And in fact, in just a moment, I'm going to tell you some of the details of, of Abraham's life. Abraham is not a person that you should imitate every aspect of his life. All right. We'll talk about that more later. Do not imitate Abraham. The only thing Paul is lifting up is the, the faith of his heart that responded to this amazing, powerful, loving God. Amen, amen. And in particular, what Paul is lifting up in these verses is three sort of aspects of who God is. I want you to write these down because this is what we're gonna talk about here for the next few minutes. He's focused in particular on three things. The promises of God, the power of God, and the person of God. Or his, his character, his faithfulness. That's what Abraham responded to. The promise of God, the power of God, because you need both, and the person of God. God's faithful. You can trust him. Let's talk about each of these for a minute. Promise of God. Did you notice the repetition of the word promise in those verses I just read? Look at your Bible. 13a, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir 
And then verse 14b, for it is, it, it's the inheritance of the law who to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. Verse 16, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Abraham believed a specific thing that God said was going to happen. And then he adjusted his entire life around that promise. Let me say that again. Abraham believed a specific thing that God said was going to happen. And then he adjusted his entire life around that promise. And the most amazing verse is the one I read last, verse 18. Look at verse 18 where it says, in hope he believed against hope, I love this, that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. Just underline that in your Bible, as he had been told. Friends, can I tell you something? Faith means taking God at his word. That's what faith is. Taking God at his word. Faith means to receive what God has said, and it means to let God define reality for you. When you take God at his word, what you're doing is you're saying, God, you have the authority to define reality in my life. So Abraham wasn't just believing in God in general. He wasn't just believing there is a God. His heart was responding to something specific that God had promised him. He believed that specific thing. God said, I am going to bless you with a son, Isaac. And then what Abraham did is he adjusted his entire world around that promise. Did you know that when Abraham, that promise was made, he immediately moved. He and Sarah, they moved. They left their, their land and they moved towards a land that God told them to that would be big enough to house this mighty nation. But they're childless. They're old, they're barren. They have no children of their own. But they, he picked up and he moved. He followed the promises of God. He took God at his word. They started picking out baby names. They started setting up the nursery, all right? Maybe they had a shower for Sarah, I don't know. But they, they, Abraham believed God and then he built his entire reality around that promise. And this is what saving faith is to trust the bare word of God. Now, sometimes, I want you to think about this. Sometimes faith requires you to take God at his word, even when every other voice in your life seems to contradict it. Faith means, God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna believe you in your word. Even though, Every other voice, every other message in my life seems to be contradicting what you're telling me. That's when it becomes faith. I actually have to trust you, God. I have to trust what you're promising me. So can I ask you a question this morning? I really want you to think about this. Who are you listening to right now? Who are you listening to? Who's got your ear right now in your life? And why are you letting them define reality for you? What is the messaging that's coming in? And where is it coming from? And, and if, it's, if it doesn't agree with what God is telling you, why are you allowing it to define reality for you? I know Christians, I've, t I've talked to Christians, some in our church, who from the perspective of Jesus, from Christ's perspective, they are totally at peace with God, like at peace with God. But for some reason, they refuse to believe that promise. They've got other voices. Maybe it's an internal voice. Maybe it's something from their past, a shame, a hurt, a, a sin, something that's broken. And they're allowing that messaging to continue to tell them, you're not at peace with God. God doesn't accept you. Your relationship with God is not whole. When Jesus is saying to you, you are at peace with God because of my sacrifice. And the question becomes, 
If Jesus is telling you you're at peace with God, why are you listening to all these other voices in your life? Right? Sometimes faith means taking God at his word, even when that message contradicts other voices. But here's the thing. I also know, and I've talked to many people, who are not at peace with God, but they think that they are because they're listening to all these other voices about who God might be or what God cares about or what God's standards are. And those voices do not come from the word of God. And so they think that they're at peace with God when they're not at peace with God. And God is clearly calling them, come, put your faith in Jesus and have peace. And so who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? God has made Precious promises. Now, I want to say something. The promise that God made to Abraham and Sarah, we're going to talk about this in a minute. The, the, the promise he made to Abraham and Sarah is not the same promises that he makes to you and I, right? Abraham and Sarah got a specific promise. They got a promise of a child. But we get other promises. We get New Testament promises. So I'm going to share more about that in a minute. But now I want to talk to you about power. So there's promise and there's power, And here's what I want you to know about power. You don't need faith to step into things that are humanly possible. It doesn't take faith to do that. If something is humanly possible, you don't need any faith to walk into it. But God was asking Abraham to believe something that defied all probability and any human possibility or power. And that's why he had to respond in faith. So look at verse 19. Let's read a little bit more. This is a very important verse. Verse 19 tells us that Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. That's a little harsh, right? It's a little harsh. But when it comes to virility and the ability to reproduce, when you're 100, you're basically dead, okay? So he was as good as dead, right? And when he considered, so when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, Paul tells us he didn't waver in faith. This is an amazing, amazing verse. Abraham, he could have focused on that reality. He could have let that reality dictate truth for him. He could have said, Lord, how can you possibly promise this? Look, I'm 100. Sarah's 99. She's been barren our entire life. This is impossible. But he chose not to focus on that. It wasn't that he was ignoring facts. He wasn't ignoring the, the, the reality of his life. Faith is not escaping reality. Faith is not the absence of thinking. Faith does not mean turning off your cognitive faculties. Faith simply means prioritizing facts about God over the facts of human possibility or human reality. That's faith. I say, yeah, my circumstances seem dire. Abraham, I'm sure he, worked, he was thinking it through. My circumstances seem dire. But the reality is I am not going to let, I'm not going to let the circumstances of my life and the categories of human possibility dictate reality for me. I choose to believe that there is a God in heaven who's more powerful than all of this. All of this. Amen? Amen? I love this truth. And verse 17 is the key. So look at it again. I, I rushed past this, but now I want to I really get you thinking about this. Look at verse 17. It is, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Now look at this, and this is a description of that God. A God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. We just hover over those two phrases that last couple of phrases, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is what Paul's doing. He's, he's clarifying. Look at the verse. He says, Abraham believed God. And just to clarify, let me tell you the kind of God 
that Abraham was believing. He's a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, what do those two things have in common? This is it. They both are things that are humanly impossible. Humans cannot do either of those two things. Humans cannot raise the dead. They can't bring life from death. And human beings, I love the second phrase, calling into existence the things that do not exist. Do you know what that phrase is? It's creation ex nihilo. It's creating something out of nothing. Calling into existence something that does not exist is something that only God can do. Humans cannot do it. And Abraham says, this is the kind of God that Abraham believed in. And that's what, that, was, that was why his faith was so significant. I've been reading a book this last year um, that uh, it's, a, it's a disturbing book. It's called Homo Deus. It's by um, a, a secular, he's an atheist. He teaches at uh, Jerusalem University. His name is Yuval Harari. And this book, it's called A Brief History of Tomorrow. And uh, I don't actually don't recommend this book. Don't read this book, all right? Unless you want to have nightmares and stay up all night or something. But I do want to read to you just because it disturbed me. I wanted to share my disturbance with you. <laughs> I'm just going to read a little bit. Okay, here's just the cover of the book. Um, here's what he said. Over the past century, humankind has managed to do the impossible. We've turned the uncontrollable forces of nature, namely famine, plague, and war, into manageable challenges. Today, more people die from eating too much than from eating too little. Isn't that interesting? More people die from old age than from infectious diseases. And more people commit suicide than are killed by soldiers, terrorists, and criminals combined. I'd have to fact check that. I don't know if that's actually true, but if it is, it's crazy. More people commit suicide today than are killed by soldiers, terrorists, and criminals combined. We are the only species in Earth's long history that has single-handedly changed the entire planet, and we no longer expect any higher being to mold our destinies for us. What then will replace Famine, plague, and war at the top of the human agenda. What destinies will we set for ourselves and which quests will we undertake? Homo Deus explores the projects, dreams, and nightmares that will shape the 21st century from overcoming death to creating artificial life. But the pursuit of these very goals may ultimately render most human beings superfluous. And what he describes in this book, he says, here's what, here's what I predict. Human beings through a process of biotechnology and cybergenetics, we will create a new human species. There will still be homo sapiens on the planet and there will become a new species of human that will be the elite, super rich, ultra class, a species that he says will be something like Homo Deus, the, the title says it all, human gods, human gods. And that elite superclass of bioengineered human beings will leave behind the rest of us. Scary, right? This is like dystopian novel, okay? And, but here's the, here's the point of the whole thing. There's one, because obviously he doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in God. But there's one thing that humans will never be able to do. We'll never be able to raise someone from the dead. And we will never be able to create something out of nothing. No matter how much technological advancement we make, we'll never be able to do that. And Abraham believed this. His heart responded. You can imagine Abraham working it out. God, says, God comes to Abraham and says, you and Sarah are going to have a child. And you can imagine Abraham thinking about his life. And working this through and going, if there is a God who's a creator, which I believe there is, 
he's got to be all powerful. And if he's all powerful, then there's nothing about my life, nothing about my circumstances that are more powerful than him. He can, he can accomplish this promise in my life. And Abraham believed. Abraham believed. But let's be honest. Let's be honest. Most of us prefer a kind of faith in our life where we depend on God a little bit, but we always have a backup plan, right? We depend on God, we have faith, but we always have something to fall back on. Isn't that right? This is what Tony Evans, who's a, a Tony Evans is a, a, a pastor and an author. He calls this, he calls this mutual fund faith. All right, a mutual fund faith. Any investors out there, okay? In the stock market, there's like two, there's two ways to invest. There's like super high risk investment where you put all your investment in like one company. Maybe it's a startup. And if that company does well, you get super rich. And if that company does not do well, you lose all your money. So back in the early 2000s, anyone who invested in Facebook did really well, right? And anyone who invested in MySpace not so much. Some of you are like, what's my space? That's my point precisely. What is my space, right? So what we do is we do mutual funds. And what's a mutual fund? A mutual fund is where you, you, you get together with a lot of other people and you spread your investment out over a lot of different companies. So if any one of those companies fails, you don't lose all your money. And that's what we do. We say, God, I totally trust you but I'm also going to always have this thing to fall back on. I trust you. I trust you in this, in my marriage. And I believe you're going to work this through, but I'm going to call the lawyer and start preparing for divorce proceedings. I trust you in this relationship, this new dating relationship. And I know what you're calling me to do in this relationship, but we're going we're gonna to live together because I, I want to make sure that we, our relationship will actually work. And so we say, I trust you, Lord, but I always have something to fall back on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spread out the risk just a little bit. And the problem is that works with mutual funds, but it doesn't work with God. It doesn't work with God. Because God says that's the whole point of faith. The whole point of faith is you jumping in all the way, all the way. Folks, God has the power to raise the dead. He has the power to raise the dead. You notice that in this, in this passage, there's resurrection talk. It's interesting. We think the resurrection is only a New Testament thing, but God was predicting in the story of Abraham and Sarah that he was a God who would raise the dead. So when he came to Abraham and he promised him life... The way the passage talks, it talks about this ability for God to bring life out of, out of death, out of barrenness. This is a very, very sensitive topic. In any time as a pastor, you come to the story of Sarah and Abraham, you're, you're touching on something that is very tender for people in the church because there are people in our church that I know and love who have struggled with the hurt of barrenness. And so I don't mean to bring this up in any way to create hurt for people. But the reality is that the way that, Abra the way that Paul tells Abraham and Sarah's story, he describes them as people who were experiencing almost like a deadness. Abraham was as good as dead. Sarah's womb was barren. That word in the Greek means her womb was, was dead. Abraham and Sarah needed resurrection from the dead. That's what they needed. And only God can do that. Only God can do that. So there's the promise of God, the power of God. Here's the third one, the person of God. There's a fundamental connection between the concepts of our faith and God's faithfulness. Our faith is simply us responding to the faithfulness of God. We get this. We know that when it comes to people, whether they keep their promises or not, it always boils down to their character. Is this person trustworthy? So I want to tell you, I want to brag a little bit about my wife. My wife 
never makes promises she cannot keep. If Kathy makes a promise, you can, I guarantee you she's going to keep it. My wife has never started a sentence with, to be honest, and then you know how we do that? We'll start a sentence, to be honest. She never has to start a sentence like that because she never says anything unless it's absolutely honest, all right? Which can be painful at times. But the point is, when Kathy says something, she means it. And when Kathy makes a promise, she'll fulfill it. And this is how it works with God. The reason you can trust God is because God is faithful. He's faithful. God never makes a promise that he does not fulfill. This is what verse 20 tells us. Now let's read verse 20. Look at what Paul says next about Abraham. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Did you notice that? Look at, the, look at the way that verse starts. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But I want to ask you a question. Is that statement true? You go, Paul, did, have you read the life of Abraham? He wavered a lot. He wavered all over the place. Did you know that after in chapter 15, after God tells Abraham, you're going to have a son through Sarah's womb, in the very next chapter, Abraham sleeps with Hagar, who is Sarah's, like one of the servants in the house. He sleeps with one of the servants in the house in order to try to bring this promise to fruition. That's what... I don't know what you, how you define wavering, but I define wavering like that. Did you know that two times, not once, but two times in Abraham's life, he lied to a king about Sarah's identity? Two times. There were kings who, who noticed Sarah. He would come into a foreign land, and a king would say, wow, this woman, Sarah, is really beautiful. And Abraham would say, she's my sister. She's my sister. What kind of a guy does that? Okay, folks, let me tell you something. I don't know how Paul defines wavering, but I define wavering as lying about your wife's identity to a king who thinks your wife is beautiful. So Abraham was wavering all the time. So how can Paul say this? And what does it have to do with faith? Here's what it has to do with faith. I want you to listen to what I'm about to say to you. This is so important. The life of faith is not the perfect life. The life of faith is not a life where your faith never fluctuates. The life of faith is not a life where you never stumble or, 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 or have a misstep. The life of faith is about where do you look right after you've fallen? Where do you look? I promise you, you're going to stumble. You're going to stumble this week. Here's the question. When you stumble and, and you land flat on your face, where is the first place that you will look in that moment? Will you look up at the God who's faithful? See, see my faith in this life is more about God's faithfulness, even in those moments where I crash and burn, where I blow it, where I make a mistake, where I have a misstep. Where do I look? First, do I look to the God who's faithful and gracious and kind and true? And this is the God that Abraham believed in. This is why he had this radically God-centered faith. But that's not all, and here's where I'm going to close. Abraham's faith was surprisingly God-glorifying. Can we put verse 20 back up there, Chris? I, I read past this quickly. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, no, excuse me. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. And look at this, as he gave glory to God. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And here's what I want to close with. When you have radical God-centered faith, that faith gives glory to God. It's an act of worship. When you believe God with something that is truly radical and you trust him, 
This is the surprising part of it. It means that you're, you're really trusting God. That becomes a way that you worship God with your life. And the harder the promise is to fulfill, the more glory God gets when you radically trust him. If it's a really audacious promise and you say, Lord, I believe, God gets even more glory. Abraham was like, Lord, what are you talking about? I'm 100. Sarah is 99. This is impossible. You're promising me that the two of us are going to have a child that we're going to name Isaac. You're, you're giving me this promise. And that is impossible. Now, here's the question. What could Abraham do in that moment that would give God um, the maximum amount of glory? Believe him. Believe him with all of his heart. And that's what Abraham did. So last Sunday, I, I missed a major opportunity last Sunday. I got home and I was sitting in my living room and I was like, oh, okay, which happens almost every Sunday. But anyway, that's another story. I was sitting there and I was thinking back to an illustration that I used last Sunday and realizing I had an opportunity to do so much more with that illustration. And that's why I'm so thankful that there's always next Sunday. Okay. <laughs> and here was the illustration. Maybe you remember it. I was talking about that moment when I was trying to teach Lauren how to swim. You remember this illustration? Lauren was three years old. She was standing on the deck of the pool. I was in the water and I was looking up at her and I was saying, Lauren, do you trust me? And Lauren was so adorable. She would smile at me and she would say, I totally trust you. And I would say, jump in the water. And she would say, no, I'm not going to do it. No. And not only that, I remember another thing she did. When I would say, Lauren, do you trust me? She would say, yeah. And I would say, jump in the water. And then she would do this little dance that I call the I'm really scared dance. She would go, no. And then she would back away. All right. And here's, here's, here's what I used that illustration to say. The trust transfer. What happens when you give up trusting in the, in the concrete and you jump into God's reality? And that's a really good part of the illustration. But here's what I missed talking about. Here's what I missed talking about. What do you communicate to the world when you jump without even thinking about it? You communicate how powerful, how awesome, how good, how faithful God is, right? God says, jump. You just go, you, you're jumping before he even finishes. But here's a question. When God calls you with a, with a promise, what do you communicate when you go and you back away? No, no. What do you communicate? A couple of things. Number one, you communicate, I don't think dad's able to catch me. I actually question his power. Or God says, jump, and you don't jump. What do you communicate? You, you think, he's kind of tricky. I bet he's going to move out of the way, and I'm going to hit the water, right? You, you question his character, his goodness. Or you're thinking, I don't really want to jump in the pool because it's cold, and I don't want to get wet. So you're questioning his wisdom. So when, when you don't respond to the call of God, you're questioning his power, you're questioning his wisdom, you're questioning his goodness. But how much do you communicate when you jump in radical faith? You're, you're worshiping God. You're giving glory to God. Here's the question. Is God calling, has God been calling you to something right now in your life? Something that requires a step of faith? For some of you, what it is, is it's the call to respond to the gospel. Come, receive the gift of forgiveness in Christ. Put your faith completely in Christ. And some of you, you're, 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 you're hesitating. And God is saying, I'm inviting you. Receive Christ. 
For some of you, maybe as you've been praying and reading your Bible and you're, and you're spending time with the Lord, he's calling you to something risky. He's calling you to something at work. He's calling you to make a transition in your life. He's calling you to be honest in a situation where no one else is being honest. And you know, this is really risky. This could, be, this could create a lot, a lot of hardship for me. What will you communicate by jumping into the call of God? with boldness. You'll, you'll communicate to the world how glorious he is. Amen? Amen? I'm going to invite the worship team to come, and we're going to take communion. And while we do that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read out the last four verses of this passage. So, Chris, can we put up verse 22? Here's how Paul ends the passage. This leads us to communion. Verse 22, he says, this is why Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. It was radically God-centered. It was surprisingly God-glorifying. And this is why it was counted him as righteousness. But then he goes on, verse 23, but these words, it was counted him, they were not written for his sake alone, verse 24, but for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, verse 25, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, in one sense, Abraham's faith and our faith, it shares something in common. We're both being called to believe that God raises the dead. Raises the dead. Abraham was being called to believe that looking forward. I will, I will raise the dead. I will create life out of death. I will bless you with Isaac. And we, we believe that looking back on the resurrection of Christ. God said, Jesus will die for sin. He'll be laid in a tomb and I'll raise him from the dead. And I have raised him from the dead. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And that's what this moment is all about. So we're gonna worship this morning. And I'm going to invite you to come to the, to the table, get the bread and the cup, and then return to your seat. And as you get the bread, as you get the cup, and you return to your seat, and just hold on to those elements, I want you to just reflect on the promises of God, the promises in the gospel. The eating and the drinking, what we're saying is, God, I, I believe you. I believe what you said. I believe that Jesus paid for my sins. I believe that you raised him from the dead. You accepted his sacrifice. I believe these things. I trust you. And see what God won't do in your life. Let's pray about that. Well, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much, Lord. We thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you for Paul's writing. We thank you for his reflections, using Abraham as an example. But most of all, God, we want to thank you for this faith that Abraham modeled and really a faith that we are being called to step into this world. And how I want to pray now as we, as we worship, as we come to the table, there are some of us here this morning, Lord, where we know, God, you're, you're calling us to step into something that's risky, something that takes faith. For some, that's the call to put our hope in Jesus Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. And how I pray in this moment that many would respond to that call. But for some of us, Lord, you're calling us into other things. And the reality is, Lord, we, we believe you are trustworthy. And so we thank you, we worship you, and we pray that you would get all the glory today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Everybody's saying, amen.